Well, I did something uh, this week that I don't often do. I changed the sermon series that we are going to preach on uh, the week of. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, you know, I'll plan the, the whole uh, sermon series for the whole year. I'll seek the Lord in the summer and, and plan it out and say, okay, these are the texts we'll go through. These are the themes we'll look at. Uh, and then typically we will stick to that. You know, now this past year, nothing was typical. So sometimes we did change. But uh, this week I changed uh, heading into Sunday a little later than typical. Why? Well, I read this book, Even If... My best friend wrote it, and so when it came out, um, Multnomah Press, uh, I uh, purchased it on Amazon. It came, and you know, you got if your best friend writes a book, you got to read it, right? So I, I read it, and it was uh, uh, last weekend I started, and, and as I got into it, I, I really just thought, man, what the Lord is showing me in Daniel 3 and the truths of His Scriptures of who our God is. In the face of unmet expectations is critical for us as a body in this time. Uh, So I said, well, let's just change it. Let's change the series. So we're going to spend three weeks in Daniel chapter 3 and kind of circling text around it. Uh, And I want us to hear the subtitle of this book because this is why it's not because it's a great book or my best buddy wrote it or that kind of thing. But listen to this truth, trusting God. When life disappoints, overwhelms, or just doesn't make sense. What we're going to find in Daniel chapter 3 is we're going to find an even if faith. A faith that goes deep in this moment when life does not hand us what we want it to. Because unmet expectations will crush us. When we expect uh, something in our life to go a certain way and it does not, it will crush us. Uh, You know, uh, Ed Stetzer is this kind of church guru. He gathers all this uh, data and stuff for church planting in churches all over the country. And and he did this survey, and as I was heading into church planting, I remember reading it. And in the survey, he talked about the things that will crush a church, a church plant. This was us nine years ago, right? Uh, you know, things like uh, if you don't have uh, your own uh, building, right, over time, uh, or a stable place to gather, or if you don't have a leadership development pipeline, or if you have insufficient funds, right? These were some of the things at the top of the list that will crush a church plant. Uh, right up there around the top, unmet expectations. When a planting pastor or the team comes in and, and thinks it will go this way and it goes that way, thinks it will grow like this and it diminishes like that. Uh, when you think life will go this way and it goes that way. You see, the reality is unmet expectations don't just crush church plants. They crush us in our lives. Uh, unmet expectations will crush your marriage. Unmet expectations will crush your faith as you go into the workplace and you think uh, living for Christ at work will look something like this and it goes something like that. When you think you'll get married and you don't, when you think you'll have a kid and you don't, when your marriage tanks like this and you thought it would go like that, uh, when your health, you thought it would be like this and it's like that, unmet expectations will crush us and our faith. If we don't have the even if faith that we'll see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so how the heck do we get there? 
And what we're going to do, we're going to spend three weeks in Daniel chapter 3 and circling around in the truths of who our God is in these scriptures. Uh, but today, we're going to focus in on the moment that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then uh, we'll focus real deep into their response after that, and then the outcomes after that. So the moment they stand before the king, then we'll look into their response a bit more deeply. And then last, the outcomes and what God does in the midst of this moment of unmet expectations. So let's get into it. If you have a Bible, and I'd say, but please bring your Bible. If not, we have one as a gift for you. You can snag one uh, in the back there. Uh, go to Daniel chapter 3. If you want to find Daniel, it's a little harder to find. Find Psalms. You know, it's a big book of the Bible in the Old Testament. Then keep going forward past Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and then when you get to Ezekiel, it looks a little bit like Daniel. Uh, that next book coming up there close by is Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Verse 13 to 18, the moment that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, followers of the one true God, right? Those who are worshiping God himself. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image I have made. Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, if our God who is able, if our God who is king does not rescue us from this fire, you be sure, Nebuchadnezzar, we will not worship you. Even if life does not go the way I want it to, if I end up in that fiery furnace where I do not want to be, if, if I do not get married when I want to, if I do not have the child that I so desire, if my health does not flourish the way I want it to, uh, even if that occurs, I will still worship my God, they say. Even in the face of the, the core of who I am, when I have an unmet expectation there, I will still worship if I end up in that furnace, so be it. The context makes it even more shocking because this is on the tail end of unmet expectation after unmet expectation. Here's the context of the book of Daniel. If you go back to chapter 1, we see it. Chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Here's what's occurred. The uh, people of God are, are uh, following him under the rule of their kings. 
The kingdoms have separated. You've got Israel in the north, and you've got Judah in the south, and Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, right? And, and so uh, the people of God are still worshiping him in a sense. They're being very disobedient, and, and the prophet uh, Jeremiah is saying a day is coming when you are going to be crushed. But they're kind of closing their ears to that message because here's what they've seen happen. Assyria has come in, and they've crushed the north. Kind of half of God's people are now uh, under subject and, and slaves, and they've been destroyed by Assyria. But then now Babylon has come in, swallowed up Assyria, and the, the people of God in Jerusalem and in the south are thinking, I bet he's still going to hold off these troops of Babylon like he did for us when Assyria tried to take us over. I bet life will go well with me. I've got a God who loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. All will go as hope for. And then the armies of Babylon start coming from the north and surround Jerusalem. And we see in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 this moment when Nebuchadnezzar swallows up Jerusalem. An unmet expectation, massive number one comes where, where the people of God fall under the rule of Babylon. Oh, we see in verse 4 of chapter 1, use without blemish of good appearance and skill, full of wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. Go fetch them, what, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. What? They're enslaved, right? Like uh, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar pillages Jerusalem and take uh, all of their uh, fine goods and even things from the temple and take it to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, and, and take it there for themselves. And they don't just take their stuff, they take their people, the used, the, the, those who are best of, of, of high intellect and good looking they, they take them all as slaves and what do they do? They teach them, they re-educate them and oppress them, they even give them new names, Chaldean names Daniel and his friends are renamed, that's where we get the three names of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego you don't have your names anymore, you don't have your education, your culture anymore you're oppressed and subject to the people of Babylon Can't you see them scratching their heads at this moment? <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I signed up for when I gave my life to you, Lord. I signed up for that wonderful good life that I thought you had promised me. And they are given these unmet expectations one after another after another. Then they find themselves before Nebuchadnezzar himself. And he says, bow down or you will burn. Not what I signed up for. I thought life was going to get better and better and better <laughs> after you and I started walking together, Lord. Not, not this. And, and in the face of unmet expectation after one, after another, after another, enslaved and renamed and re-educated, pillaged, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the, the king of Babylon, the Lord of lords, the Almighty One on the earth, and say, we will serve none other than the Lord of lords, the true king of kings. He is our God. We will worship Him. Him alone. And even if faith, they had not bought into the deadly lie, the unbiblical lie, the untrue expectation that we have a God who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. True statement until we define it the way that we often redefine it. 
which is we have a God who will give me what I want when I want it. It will go the way I want it to, and I want it to go this way, so give me it that way. (laughs) See, we've read the verses, and we say we assent to them, right? James chapter 1. Consider it joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Yep, I know trials are going to come. I'll consider it joy. Great. Got it. Okay, it's up there. Matthew chapter 6, when our Savior himself, Jesus says, storms will come. And on that day, right, uh, when the winds come and the rains come, and, and don't build yourself on the sand, but build it. Well, yep, storms are going to come. I got it. Yep, totally. Yep, it's, I could experience some suffering in this life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. We say, oh yeah, totally, like when I follow Jesus, it could get worse, right? I understand that. Or, or maybe we've even read Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. But when we read when, we thought if. And we took the promise to be these days will not come rather than he will be with us in those days. Deadly, unbiblical expectations will be unmet expectations that will destroy us when our God chooses not to spare us of suffering but to sustain us through it. See, when unmet expectations hit us, particularly when it's core to our life and our family, our singleness, our kids, our health, or our job, typically we'll go one of two ways. Way number one is we will abandon the Lord. We'll abandon Him. Uh, Way number two is we will live a life of apathy uh, before the Lord, right? We we might abandon the Lord uh, uh, and say, uh, man, I, I did not sign up for this furnace. And, and so we turn our back on the Lord and, and instead we find for ourselves uh, uh, pseudo-saviors, false saviors in, in money or, or job or relationship and say, I'll look in those places for the security and value that I need, the protection that I need, because obviously you, Lord, have not shown up for me. Or we live a life of apathy, says, fine, if this is what you're going to give me, this, uh, I want this and you give me that, then I'll just show up at church. I'll just kind of go through the motions. I'll go to work. Heart becomes hard, lack of joy. And we just live then as our own pseudo-savior. I'll just kind of trudge through life on my own and do what I please, and the whole time I'll just wear the label Christian. But what we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a third way, a way of deep, heartfelt trust and worship and allegiance and obedience and and even if faith. How do we go there? Let's look more deeply into their response. Because there is deep life and transforming presence in a moment of faith that meets the fire. Verse 15 uh, goes on, but you did not worship. This is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands, Nebuchadnezzar says. 
Who is this God who's going to deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. The first bit of their response is that uh, statement of ability. Let's see what they do here is they, they look at the king. I love uh, their response. He says, who's this God who's going to save you? And then they say, to, they say to the king of Babylon who's crushed Assyria, who has crushed uh, the Israelites in Jerusalem, and, and is it, the most powerful, mighty king in the area, most likely the whole world. They say, we don't even need to talk to you. Did you hear him? Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. See, what they do, they, they place Nebuchadnezzar uh, side by side to the, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, the, the almighty one, and say, we don't even need to talk to you. We know the might, we know the power, we know the ability of our God, and when we place him next to you, you're, you're like not even in the same ballpark. When I think of God's ability, they say, we know he is able. Able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and able to deliver us from you. But they go even a bit deeper in the second half of their response. And they say, but if not... Even if he doesn't rescue us, listen to this, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's 90 feet by 90 feet. It's gold. It's massive. It's amazing. You think you're the king of kings and the lord of lords, but, but here's the reality. We know the one who is able, who is mighty, and it's not just that he's able and he's mighty. We know who he is. We know his character. We know his faithfulness. We know his love. We know that we can trust him. See, we know this God so deeply that when it comes to obeying you or him, we're going to choose trusting him. When it comes to loving you or him, we're going to love him. When it comes to worshiping you or him, we're going to worship him. Why? Because we know his character. We know how faithful and loving and kind and amazing our God is. So even if he lets us burn, you know what we know? He is good. We might not understand it. We might not want it. But we do not worship Santa Claus. We do not love Santa Claus. We don't trust and follow and obey and hand our allegiance to Santa Claus. They say, we love, we trust, we obey the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who is our Father, who is with us, who is good, who can be trusted, who can be loved, who can be followed even into the furnace because we know His character. Who you believe God to be will determine your response to unmet circumstances, unmet expectations, circumstances you do not desire, I do not want. Those moments when sin's effects in the world come too close to our front door. 
Those moments when our health fails or our marriage is tanking or our singleness is oppressive, when those moments hit, that's when we need to trust the ability and the character of our God. And sometimes our own personal stories are not enough to lean into. Sometimes you may be looking and thinking about your own personal story and say, I have got to expand my sample size of the data that I use to judge who my God is. I need to widen the circle that I look at and and think about when it comes to who my God is to get a a clearer picture. See uh, page 14 of the book, Even If. Pastor Mitchell puts it this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego demonstrated a faith informed by more than just their personal stories. Their devotion flowed from a deeper spring than the surface streams of their circumstances. Their faith was built on the work of God in ages past. See, this is where the even-if declaration finds its foundation, in the objective historical testimony of Scripture and the saints of old. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego built on is available to you and to me. Your faith is much more than just private devotion, a set of personal values or experiences that you only hold true. God has been at work throughout human history providing for, leading men and women and children in profound and powerful ways. His fingerprints are everywhere, even in the darkest of times. Remembering this can make all the difference in whom we know God to be, especially when facing the fire. We need a faith informed by more than just our personal circumstances. We need a faith informed that points us to a God who is able and good. A faith informed by the God of the Scriptures. The God of saints and the God even of my own story as well. See, the God of scriptures. Psalm 134, 136 verse 1 and following. Psalm 136 verse 1 and following. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. For his steadfast love endures forever. And then from creation to the whole story of God's people. Down even to us. What we see is a moment after moment in the scriptures. And to us God's faithfulness over time in history. If we do not know the Scriptures, we do not know how faithful and able and good our God is. Objectively, this is who our God is. We see His faithfulness over and over, both in assuaging the power of the Assyrians to conquer His people and then allowing the Babylonians to conquer His people and how the story is carried out over time to bring the Savior to rescue you and me and bring salvation to all languages, tongues, and tribes. If you and I do not know the Scriptures, we do not know our able, good God. The God of the saints will also transform our ability in the moments of fire to trust Him with an even-if kind of faith. The saints around us, right? I love this moment in 2 Corinthians. It's chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Paul, this one saint, he's not a saint because he's amazing. He's a saint because he's in Christ and forgiven and made pure. 
talks to the other saints of 2 Corinthians and, and this Corinthian church. And, and you know they're not saintly. The way they're living, if you read the book, is nasty, right? But, but they're covered in the, the grace and the, the blamelessness of Christ. So they too are saints, like you and I in Christ are saints. He says one to another, he says this. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we faced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us now. Do you you see, is this not showing up on a Sunday morning as a saint of God and saying, everything's awesome. So good to see you, brother. I'm so happy. And then behind the facade, everything is crumbling because unmet expectation is piling upon unmet expectation. Rather, this is coming to your 3D group, to your community group on a Sunday morning with honesty and saying, man, life is in shambles right now, but my God is good. He is choosing not to uh, spare me from this suffering, but to sustain me in it. And even though I don't feel like it right now, I want to be reminded that my God is good. I'm reminded often of my friend who traveled through cancer and the destruction that brought in his life and his kid's life and his wife's life and, and how that impacted their family so deeply. And there were moments when he was just in despair. He was transparent and open with the suffering he was facing and the God who was sustaining him. And, and even in moments where he's just not trusting him at all, right? Like that's just honest and true. In those moments, we were able to say to him, man, he's still with you, and we are still with you. Please know he's with you because we're just still with you, listening and, and walking with him. Not trying to answer every question, but being with you. I think often of my father-in-law who had heart surgery early. as a pastor, an amazing pastor. He had to retire early because of his heart condition. And, and you just look at him and you say, man, God, right, what are you doing in these moments? And, and how he lived faithfully and faithfully in really low, desperate times and in really amazing times of blessing as well. Not always getting it right. This is not about getting it right, but learning from one another and looking to the saints around us to learn of who our God is as he is able and he is good to sustain us through time and through suffering. And thirdly, the God, yes, even of my own story. Joshua chapter 4 is just one of my favorite passages where the Israelites come into the promised land, right? They're given this land God has promised them. And they cross the Jordan River. God does this amazing thing where he parts it. They step over. And then God says, uh, you know, get for yourself piles of stones. I've talked a lot about these stones in my own life. I'm not going to share a lot about them this morning. But, uh, you know, our family carries this whole pile of stones. We, we pile it up in our living room every January 1st, the new year. And, and we look at these stones together. And we look back and we share. How has God been faithful? Because that's just what they did in Joshua chapter 4. Right There's this little phrase, when your kids ask you, what are these stones about? You get an opportunity when someone says, what are these stones about? To point to your faithful God who is what? Able and good. The sermon would be too long if I told you about the rock that captured our rocky marriage. And how God met us in the midst of it when it was falling apart, right? Or, or, or the rock that, that captures that moment when just another car broke down. We had this car, it broke down, and, and, and God provides, right? And you're like, man, what a God in the midst of that. Or, or, or the rock that captures the unmet expectations of the lives of our kids. 
And what a heavy burden that often is even today, but our God who chose not to spare is still sustaining. See, when we look to the God of the Scriptures, the God of the saints, and the God of your own story, what you see, what I see, is He is good and able. He is able. He is good. And this even-if faith emerges out of that foundation. Remembering the ability and the character of our God who has stepped with us into the fire, let's now look at the outcome of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faith in the midst of the fire. I love Daniel chapter 3 because it is honest with life and the story. Verse 19 of chapter 3, you know, we might expect they show this amazing faith and that's woohoo, all is well saved. God steps in right then, verse 19. But Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. You see, their circumstance didn't change. It actually intensified. Uh, He often will not change our circumstance, but he will step with us into it. Actually, uh, when you begin your relationship with Jesus, it may get worse and worse and worse for you at work, in your marriage, new new burdens, new challenges, in your singleness, in your health, in every aspect, right? I mean, look at Peter's life. Peter's like, I'm going to follow Jesus. He gets hung upside down on a cross. James, Jesus' own brother, gets tossed from the the roof of a temple and stoned when he hits the bottom, right? It got worse and worse and worse from him. Seven times hotter it's heated. Verse 22, because the king's order was urgent, the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to it. It's so hot, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's own uh, servants are killed when they toss these three into the fire. The text is sure to know that there's three that are bound, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 23 and following. These three men are tossed in. Verse 24, though, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declares to his counselors, did not we throw three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, oh, true king, he answered and said, but I see four. I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not heard. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And and God himself steps in with with seven times closer presence. He he walks into the fire with his people. He didn't uh, spare them of it, but he sustains them in it. He doesn't step further away. He steps into the fire with them. God himself, theophany, comes in, right? Maybe this is God the Father. Maybe this is the triune God himself. Maybe this is a pre-incarnate Christ. We're not quite sure, but, but God is there with them. And his intimate, transforming presence walks with them in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, he declares Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. You see the shift of his place? (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, the one, the Lord, the mighty, the the huge king, now says, oh, servants of the Most High God, you three, there is a God and he is Most High. I am under him. He notices, verse 27, the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside his king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. This pagan king gives worship to the true king in the midst of a faith that walks through the fire of unmet expectations. He says a decree out. Uh, he says, everybody can't speak bad of the Most High God, these three God, right? And he says, why? For there is no other God who's able to rescue in this way. I love that. And Pastor Mitchell brings it out in his book, to rescue in this way. Stepping into the fire with them. Our God, exalted and mighty, other and massive, stepping into the fire. And not only the God who is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, but over every minute of our day to walk with Him in it. He is good. He is able. He is worthy of our praise and allegiance. Because he steps with us into the fire. Our God is over, in, able, good, and near. I don't know where you've been or what is coming your way. But it will not go as you had expected. That is life. The brokenness of sin in our world, even our own sin in our own lives, or just happenstance which does not fall outside of the sovereignty of our God. What I know is our God is good and able over kings and kingdoms and minutes in your life and my life to step in in His presence, in His transforming presence. He meets us there. An intimate presence first. When you think you are alone and no one is with you, He is right there with you. That, I think that's why He gives us one another, one of the primary reasons, to remind us you are not alone. In the body of Christ, we are reminded of the presence of Christ with us in our suffering. You are not alone if you think you're alone. You are not alone. If you are trusting in Christ, you are His son, you are His daughter. He is with you today in His transforming presence. Not just intimately with you where you are not alone, but to transform you into the image and the likeness of His Son. It, it is it most likely in the suffering, in the hard times, in the unmet expectations, when He is shaping your trust. He's retooling the way you think. He's changing the way you step in your life. He's giving you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Melding that stuff in us in these moments of suffering and unmet expectations. Making us into the image of His Son, that, that He would receive glory and our joys would go even deeper. Not just intimate presence and transforming presence, but redeeming presence He is with us. To take a circumstance that looks like it's going this way outside of His purposes and, and to, to make it and, and mold it and shift it in a way that is used for His good purposes. We may never see the reason uh, for this or that thing in our life, that brokenness that has hit us in a certain way, but He is redeeming it for His eternal purposes. Where in heaven, I think we'll look at it and say, Oh, oh I understand now. 
We may not understand now, but what we know is his intimate transforming presence is also his redeeming presence to work all things for the good of those whom love him. Also, his restraining presence is with us. You may say it could not get worse than this. But you have no idea where his restraining grace and presence has shown up in your life today or in the past. No, it could not be worse than that. And he says, it would have been worse than that had I not restrained that evil or that brokenness to hit you in your life in a way that would have been too much to bear, but I'll bear this with you. And I had restrained that then, and he'll carry it with us until what he ushers us into his presence for eternity in his ushering presence. When he walks with us today into all eternity and glory where things are made the way they ought to be, where there is no more tears, there is no more sorrow or death or sting because he has walked with us to the place where all is made right. Heaven on earth here, sinless, redeemed, unbroken. Uh, You'll notice the reference for each one of these presents was the same reference. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work according together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. He, he says, I want that one. Yeah, we're not deserving, but he, he draws us by grace. And then he says, I'm going to walk with us uh, now in the suffering, the unmet expectations to the day when we are glorified. Actually, past tense, it's already done. It's as good as done. He's ushering us into that day when we'll look back and, and all the sufferings of today will be incomparable to the eternal glory that we experience with him forever. What shall we say then? (laughs) If he has done all that for us by his grace to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? None, right? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day. Uh, Yet we're regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God is good, our God is able. We forget it all the time, and I want to read and close this last story from Pastor Mitchell's life. He calls it Immigrant Swim School. Second generation Korean, uh, his family immigrated over from Korea, and well, I'll, I'll let him tell the story. 
My Korean immigrant parents were both small business owners. Days off didn't come often, so I was surprised when one day in the summer, just before my sixth birthday, my dad decided not to open his store. Let's go swimming today, he announced. Yes, but I don't know how to swim, Dad. Well, that's okay. This is the perfect chance for me to teach you, he offered with enough confidence for the both of us. My mom packed gear for the day, the usual assortment of towels, sunscreen, and of course, an incredible feast of a lunch and enough snacks to outlast a nuclear apocalypse. Such were the perks of owning your own carry-out deli, I suppose. These were the days before flotation devices were expected parts of children aquatic wear. Puddle jumper life vests had not yet been invented, and the most common apparatus for child water safety was an inflatable water ring that never quite fit around your upper arm, and which unfortunately sometimes served only as a bobber to locate where your face was actually submerged. Still, these sorts of devices, while we're overcautious, for my parents, my parents figured that if they were going to be that scared, they probably shouldn't be going into the water in the first place. With nothing but the swim trunks I was wearing for a life preserver, I was so excited to get my first real swim lesson. My father was a good swimmer, at least that's what I tell myself today. We arrived at the pool, and while my parents were getting us stationed for the day, I was already knee-deep in the kids' end, splashing around and dreaming of the ways that I was going to conquer and explore this rectangular playground. After probably a hundred, can we swim now, inquiries, my father led me by the hand deeper into the pool. Like the ring announcer before a WWE match, he asked, are you ready to swim? And before I could even say yes, as if he had assumed my answer, he launched me into the air. Just like every other part of my upbringing, my dad's swim school was founded on the immigrant philosophy of sink or swim, only this time literally. And Mitchell goes on to recount how this happened over and over again. And he swallowed so much chlorinated water. And he said, I ended up learning how to swim that day. I also learned how to drink lots of pool water and not throw up. I obviously didn't die. But in the midst of it, I really believed I was going to die. You have no ability to logically reason or think clearly when the waters are over your head. During my first and only class in immigrant swim school... I actually believed that my father, the man who had literally crossed an ocean in order to give me a better life, was going to let me die in that small swimming pool. I forgot who he was and what he had done. I forgot who he was and what he had done. You see, when you... And I forget who our God is and what he had done. It's in those moments that unmet expectations of the fire will swallow us. But when we remember, and every week we remember, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup, and after supper, he was saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you and I stand in the fire and we say, Oh my God, he is not good, he's not able. Would we remember what he has done in the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son? 
He came chasing after us, and his son lived a perfect life in our place, and he was crushed on the cross in our place. His blood was spilled, his body was broken, and he rose to newness of life to walk with you today in your unmet expectation. That he would be intimately present with us, transforming us by his presence, showing his faithfulness in his presence, ushering us into that day when all things will be made new. And if you're not trusting in him this morning, would you, for the first time, would you cling to him? Maybe it's suffering and unmet expectation that would draw you, drive you to the Son of God whose body was broken and blood was spilled for you. Would you cling to him this morning? And if you're a son, if you're a daughter of the one true king, man, would you worship him this morning, give your allegiance to him this morning again, remind yourself he is good and he is able today and always. Let's take, eat, and remember who he is and what he's done for us. That even in the fire, we would trust him with an even if kind of faith. Let's take, eat, and drink together.